All right, what's the matter, partner? It's official, old buddy. Well, has been. Hot August night and the leaves hanging down and the grass on the ground. Here I am, flat on my ass. Who, who I got living next door to me? I'm Sharon Tate. I'm in the movie. You're in this? That's me. I play Miss Carlson, the klutz. For LA Times Studios and The Real, I'm Mark Olson. This week, we're talking about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, the new film from Quentin Tarantino. Set in 1969, the movie finds an industry and a culture in transition and stars Leonardo DiCaprio as an actor on the downslope of his career and Brad Pitt as his stuntman, stand-in, best friend. Margot Robbie plays actress Sharon Tate as the movie builds toward the ill-fated night of August 8th, 1969 on Cielo Drive. There's a lot to get into with the movie, and joining me are my colleagues Jen Yamato. Hello, hello. Justin Chang. Hello. And Kenneth Turan. Good to be here. And now, just to be clear, we're going to keep the first part of this conversation spoiler-free, or at least sort of spoiler-light, and then we're going to have a second (laughs) part of the conversation. We're going to have a special guest, and we're going to really kind of dig deep into the movie's ending. But to get started, Kenny, you wrote the review for the paper, so I'll start with a question for you. All right. How do you feel about the movie's just depiction of the era? What do you think of Quentin Tarantino's 1969 Hollywood? Well, you know, I mean, I was just kind of flabbergasted by the specificity of some of the things in there. At Cannes, at the press conference, DiCaprio said talking to him about the period was like plugging into a computer database. And that really feels like the movie did that. I mean, there's so many commercials and songs and TV shows and ads, and radio. It's obsessive, but to the point where I really kind of fell in love with it. Justin? Yeah, it's Tarantino brings this kind of anthropological level of just obsessive detail. And I think a lot of the fun of the movie is looking at those posters and looking at the clips and seeing what's real and what isn't. And of course, there are a lot of real golden age memorabilia and posters in the celebrities' mansions and everything. And of course, it's a great LA location movie. You get the Cinerama Dome, you get Musso and Frank, you get Grauman's Chinese Theater, you get the now defunct Van Nuys drive-in. So all of that, it's funny because I know that Tarantino has said that he compared this movie to his Roma. It's really interesting, interesting double bill if you were to pair those two. But in terms of just on a production design level and just that obsessiveness, I can certainly see that. And now, Jen, that idea of this being Quentin Tarantino's Roma, there is something I think that definitely feels more emotional, perhaps more personal about this movie than some of Tarantino's other movies. Did you find that way? Like, how did you sort of emotionally respond to the movie? Well, I think those are two different questions for starters. (laughs) How I emotionally reacted was there are multiple levels, ways to enjoy this, depending on your relationship to Los Angeles, for example, Or we all live and work, and we work in entertainment, we cover films, so there's one degree of it's just thrilling and really kind of fulfilling to revel in the world that Tarantino recreates with his cineast's eye and his Angelino's memory of a time and place that most people alive now don't remember so vividly as we do our LA of today. So it's kind of thrilling to be immersed in this world and to see these characters, some of which are fictional, some of which are based on actual people. 
just living and working in Hollywood in 1969, Sharon Tate has this wonderful line, which is also, of course, self-referential on Tarantino's part, where she's going to dinner at the El Coyote, which is famously a very tragic dinner she had before she was murdered in real life. And she talks about that dirty movie theater down the street, which is, of course, the New Beverly, which is, of course, the theater that Tarantino runs. Should we recap the premise? Yeah, why not? I feel like I would like to hear how Kenny (laughs) sets up the premise of this film. Well, you know what I think? I think the central phrase for me in thinking about this film, the peripheral is central in this film. The first time I watched it, I kept saying, well, I like all this stuff. I like all these scenes. Am I going to like the story when the story kicks in? Well, really, the film isn't about the story. The film is about the peripheral moments, the character moments, the stuff we talked about earlier, the commercials, the recreation of the look. The story, even though, you know, it sounds like, oh, Charlie Manson, Sharon Tate, it's going to have heavy story elements. You don't feel that when the film is over. But I like the fact that, and he said as much when the press notes, he actually said, you know, I thought about constructing a, a story for these guys. And I decided not to do it. And what you have is a sequence of vignettes, some of which are wonderful. And it's just like, it's interesting to see a film that way. I mean, I was really kind of tickled by that. So Leo plays? Leo plays an actor named Rick Dalton, who had some fame in the late 50s on a television program. And now he's kind of getting bit parts in TV work. His movie career never quite came off. There's an agent played by Al Pacino who really wants him to go to Italy to make Westerns in Italy. Spaghetti Westerns. And then Brad Pitt is his sort of sidekick, stuntman, stand-in, slash driver, (laughs) uh, named Cliff Booth, who also, he understands that he's kind of on the the backside of his, you know, the downslope of his career. And then you have the two of them together, their storyline. And then essentially separate from that, you have a storyline of Sharon Tate and Roman Polanski, really focusing more on Sharon Tate. So it turns out that Rick is next-door neighbors to the Polanski-Tates on Cielo Drive, an address that lives in infamy because of the fact that it's the house where the Manson murders took place. And so very early in the movie, there's a scene where Rick and Cliff are arriving back at Rick's house, and Rick says, the smartest thing I ever did was I bought a house when I was flush, so this way I live in Los Angeles. I live in Hollywood, and nobody can tell me I, I don't. And there's a big part of the movie that I was really touched by that was these two guys both kind of grappling with, is this still the place for me? Is this still my world? Like basically feeling like a stranger in their own hometown and has time passed them by. I think having these two guys who maybe had their like salad days in the 50s and now we're at the sort of peak 60s in 1969. And then to be looking at Sharon and Roman who are like of the moment and really peaking right then to to have that sort of tension between them was something that I was just really moved like all through the movie by This is not your typical Tarantino movie in terms of, I think, what people think of as a Tarantino movie in terms of one that's really convoluted, really hyper-violent all the way throughout. It is none of those things at all. And it has this almost like procedural minutia view of what DiCaprio's character, Rick Dalton, what it's like for him as an actor – He's basically like this parallel universe version of Clint Eastwood who never made it, who came to fame in in a Western TV show, but then film career never got off the ground. And so now he's really in the dumps. And it's an interesting movie about acting, too. There are a lot of scenes of the characters driving, Brad Pitt driving Leo around, Margot Robbie as Sharon Tate driving. And that's very L.A., of course. It's kind of this interesting thing because it's about these actors 
and they're in these moments of just isolation. Just, you know, are they just being themselves? Are they playing? It's kind of a middle mix. I don't know. I found it to be really kind of profound in that way as a study of actors and, and their lives, their daily lives, as opposed to their fictional lives. You know what this film is about to me? This film is about the scene where Brad Pitt takes off his shirt on the roof. <laughs> Penny! That's what this Yes, speaking for so many of us here. I mean, you know, just to recap, I mean, there's a contrived moment where he has to go up on a roof to fix a TV antenna. And it's a warm day, and he takes his shirt off. And I swear to you, I looked at that, and I said, A, he must have worked out six months <laughs> just for this moment, because he looks just impeccable. And the other thing I noticed the second time I saw it, it is lit insanely well. It seems like a casual moment until the plot kicks in. The film is all about scenes like that. That's why he made the film, to have Brad Pitt on a roof with his shirt off lit like it was the Mona Lisa. I must say as well that I, I appreciated that when he takes his shirt off, I felt like he looked good, but it still seemed 60s period appropriate. Yeah, yeah. It was like a 60s body, not like a 2019 no. body. You guys, I thought we were going into spoilers here. <laughs> <laughs> he puts the peck in impeccable. Oh my gosh. Wow. But at the same time, though, you also get this poignant sense of with DiCaprio and Pitt, you know, who have never appeared side by side or together before, which is kind of remarkable if you think about it. And their rapport is one of the great pleasures of the movie, which is basically a nearly three-hour buddy comedy. About neurotic actors. <laughs> About neurotic actors and the stunt doubles who love them. And it's like, and care for them. There is this sense in which they are not young boys anymore. I mean, it's funny... I was just thinking about this for a piece I was writing. It's like Tarantino burst on the scene in the 90s. And that is also the decade in which Brad and Leo came to prominence. And it just adds this extra dimension of poignancy, I think, because this is very much a movie about regret and middle age and failure and insecurity and have I made the right decisions. And there's something very powerful about just when even you have two of the biggest movie stars in the world and one of the biggest directors in the world collaborating on this. Well, I think that brings up something I know that I've been thinking about with regards to the movie, and this is maybe about as spoilery as we'll get, is that with Brad Pitt's character, Cliff Booth, there's an intimation that he may have murdered his wife and that a lot of people don't like him or like as likable as Brad Pitt's performance is, as this character seems, he carries a darkness with him. He is, in the parlance of our modern times, problematic. And part of that sort of ambiguity around Brad Pitt's character is as he is sort of palling around town with Rick Dalton, Leonardo DiCaprio, he sometimes gets work as a stuntman, sometimes he doesn't. And we actually have a clip, there's a terrific scene in the movie with uh, Kurt Russell is sort of like a, the lead of a stunt team on a movie, and Leo's kind of trying to hustle for his friend Cliff to get some work. Hey, you could do anything you want to him. Th th throw him off a building, right? Light him on fire, hit him with a... Lincoln, right? Get creative. Do whatever you want. He's just he's happy for the opportunity. Rick? Yeah. I don't dig him. And I don't dig the vibe he brings on a set. And now that scene also sort of leads us to the moment where Brad leaves the set, goes to the house to fix the antenna, takes off his shirt. And then he has this kind of like flashback reverie that actually takes a moment for you kind of realize that it was indeed a flashback where he remembers the moment where he upset that Kurt Russell character so much. And it turns out it's a sort of a long scene where he remembers that on shooting the show Green Hornet, he has a fight essentially in the parking lot, like sort of waiting around between takes with Bruce Lee. And it's a, it's a strange scene that's kind of played for laughs a little bit, but it has a sort of a biting undercurrent to it. Like, do you want to talk about that? 
that scene at all? What did, what did you make of it? So to sort of set up exactly what happens in that scene, Bruce Lee, played by Mike Moe, um, is big talking behind the scenes on, on the set of The Green Hornet. Brad Pitt as Cliff is kind of laughing at him as he's bragging about his abilities. And they face off in a round of three um, to see who can best the other. And what the film, I suppose, cleverly does is that it calls it a draw, um, which is not going to please, I think, a lot of people. A lot of Bruce Lee fans are going to have, I think, a legitimate beef with how he's portrayed, uh, particularly in this scene, because this film is is doing something different than how it treats Sharon Tate. It treats Sharon Tate so with with so much care. It does not do the same with Bruce Lee. And it's frankly, it's not very satisfying. I, I am very curious to know if there's a longer version of this film that maybe had more um, with Bruce Lee, maybe that showed more dimension or maybe there's some cut of this of this scene even that portrays him in a slightly less uh, potentially insulting light uh, i would love to know that and it's interesting as well that they've made in the advertising for the movie they've made these character billboards for Mike Moe as Bruce Lee when really he has essentially one dialogue scene in the movie which is this fight sequence and so it's odd to elevate him in the advertising when it really doesn't sustain itself in the movie itself right so studios asking for this scrutiny and i think let's give it to them yeah <laughs> okay we're going to switch gears and talk about real spoilers in the end of the movie and to build towards that, here is Quentin Tarantino at the Cannes Film Festival explaining why he thinks people are still so fascinated by Charles Manson and the Manson family. I think we're fascinated by it because at the end of the day, it almost seems unfathomable. Uh, yeah, uh, I've done a lot of research on it, and I think a lot of people have uh, not done professional research, but over the last of a few years, either they read one book or two books or listened to the podcast that develop about it or TV specials every three years or so. And how he was able to get these girls and even these young boys to just submit to him, it just seems unfathomable. And frankly, the more you learn about it and the more information you get and the more concrete it gets, it doesn't make it any clearer. It actually makes it even more obscure the more you know. And I think the, the, un, the unknowingness of it, uh, the, 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 the impossibility of being able to truly understand it, I think is what causes its fascination. And so now we're going to take a short break. And then when we come back, we're going to have a special guest joining us for the first time here on The Real. And we're going to get into our sort of spoiler section and talking about the ending of the movie. Where there ain't no tree, Charlie's going to dig you. And that gospel group. Telling you And so now for us to get into talking about the ending of the movie, this is very much a spoiler-specific part of the conversation. We are joined by a very special guest for the very first time on The Real, Deputy Managing Editor for Arts and Entertainment, Julia Turner. Julia, thank you for being here. I'm so excited to be on The Real! <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I am just going to pull the Band-Aid off. I'm going to kind of explain, I'm going to kind of lay out the ending of the film so we can sort of start talking about it. So 
Four of the Manson family go to Cielo Drive. They're waiting in this cul-de-sac in their car, which doesn't have a muffler and is quite loud, and it upsets Rick Dalton very much, who's inside his house. So he comes out, and he yells at the Manson family, wearing a sort of a kimono house robe and drinking (laughs) drinking a margarita from a blender pitcher. And so he literally yells off, scares off the Manson family. And they come back. They kind of like stop. They walk back up the hill, up Cielo Drive. Because he's pissed them off. And so then they go they into... They recognize him. That's what happens. They recognize yeah. they, and him. And they recognize him. And so they go into his house. They don't go into the Tate Polanski house. They go into Rick Dalton's house, where they find Cliff Booth, who has smoked a cigarette dipped in acid. And so he's not sure. He actually, One of my favorite lines of the movie, he says, are you real? So then... Suddenly, Cliff is fighting the Manson family in hand-to-hand combat. And then Rick gets involved, and he burns one of them with a flamethrower that he has. That's a prop from the 14 Fists of McCluskey. And so they (laughs) defeat the Manson family. Sharon is saved. Now, Kenny, I'm going to start with (laughs) asking a question of you in that Tarantino has done this sort of historical revisionism before in most famously in Inglorious Bastards where Adolf Hitler is shot in the face. Now, there, there's something cathartic. I found it kind of thrilling, a little subversive. And here, it's a different feeling here. There's something different about the idea of saving Sharon versus the idea of killing Hitler. How did you feel about how (laughs) the sort of ending operates with regards to just plain old history? Well, you know, I mean, to me, it's not that different, actually. They're both messing with history. They're both changing history to a way that suits Tarantino that he's happy with. And in this case, I think it was just, uh, you know, I think he wanted a sweeter ending. This is a very warm film. We've been talking about this. And I don't think he wanted to end it with a terrible scene of people we've come to like being massacred. And it's his choice. I don't know if I would have done the same thing in his shoes, but it's certainly, you know, he makes the movie, he makes the choice. So I was not offended. I was not troubled. Once you messy, to me, messing with the life and death of Hitler is a bigger deal than messing with the life and death of Sharon Tate. What does it mean? That's what I'm dying to hear what you guys think about. I mean, why would Tarantino go back in time to save Sharon Tate? Like, what is he saying with that? The, the difference in stakes that you flag, Kenny, between messing with Hitler and just saving the life of this one beautiful actress, who knows what her career might have amounted to or not amounted to, whose death happened to be particularly resonant at this particular moment in L.A. history. Like, what is that about? Why did he go back in time to save Sharon Tate? I think she symbolizes for him, and you can see it in the way she's portrayed in the film. She's It's just like a classic blonde goddess. I mean— This is a fairy tale. This is a fantasy. This has once upon a time in the title. And I think this is the amalgam of all the women that Quentin Tarantino fell in love with on screen when he was a little kid. And he wants to save them. He doesn't want anything bad to happen to them. That's what it felt like to me. Save the princess? Yeah, save the princess. The damsel in distress. It is interesting because the satisfaction, the kick you get from Inglorious Bastards with wiping out Hitler in the Third Reich from Django Unchained, where Jamie Foxx's character basically shoots up a plantation. Those are largely about destroying something. You know, obviously, salvation comes out of that, but it's really about the pleasure of the violence. And, you know, Tarantino got a lot of flack for that, as well as a lot of applause, I remember, when both those movies came out. And here, the salvation element is just so much more personal and and piercing and poignant. But I think there's a double edge to it, because the reason I found the ending so moving is... It 
it reminds you of the tragedy. It's like he's able to have it both ways when he does this. He's able to use the cinema, which is because Tarantino is a devotee of the cinema, and the cinema is the thing that literally blows up a movie theater in Inglorious Bastards. The cinema is actually what saves history or achieves this astonishing reversal. And here it is also the cinema, these, you know, this actor and his stunt double, these kind of nobodies who basically save Sharon Tate and destroy the Manson family. So I think there's something about that where the screen provides this, this salvation, this immortality, but it just, that real life, of course, sadly cannot. I don't know. There's this weird having it both ways element. And this is something he's done now, I think three films in a row, but this one, it seems to resonate the most for me. The one I, the thing I loved about the way he does it in this film is that we really spend a lot of time in the hours that lead up to this final scene, and they are hours, exploring movie magic. Like, what is the craft that makes cinema so magical, that makes movies so magical? We get those resonant moments with Margot Robbie's performance, with Leo DiCaprio's performance, where we get to see the sweat, the anxiety, the insecurity, the pride that actors take in performance. Like, we really marinate in what it is to be an actor in a way that I haven't really seen a ton on screen. And then, of course, we've got Brad Pitt, the like blessed golden magic boy who is the kind of, he is the stuntman. He is the movie magic. He's the thing that makes you film be able to achieve the impossible. And he becomes our cowboy. And then it's Brad Pitt, Mr. Movie Magic himself, and the magical prop from the 14 Fists of McCloskey. I think I might be leaving a word out of that title there. Um, Fighting Fists. Uh... And, like, it is movie magic itself that saves the day. And then Brad Pitt's character just gets spirited away at the end in that ambulance that looks kind of like a hearse. And when Sharon asks how everybody's doing, Rick just answers on behalf of himself and his wife and doesn't actually really talk about how Brad went to the hospital. Like, I don't know. There's some way in which the wistfulness, the mournfulness, the longing of the idea that cinema could really have that power is part of what makes the end of the movie so powerful to me. And then the actual last scene where the punchline or the upshot is Rick gets invited up to the Polanski's Tate's house and and presumably the beginning of a beautiful friendship and maybe even the beginning of a professional collaboration. So as Julia said, if Cliff Booth is shunted off to the side and the lead, the hero now takes his place. And it's, like he's no longer relying on the support yeah, of yeah. Cliff, who is a figure of a different kind of hyper-masculinity than he is and... I think there's a reading also where you can see the kind of man, the kind of very macho Western hero that Rick was known for playing in his height is now becoming more and more obsolete, which he's feeling to his core as he sees what's happening to his career. And he doesn't want to go off and make spaghetti Westerns. But because he does, and that's a genre which Tarantino loves so purely, spaghetti Westerns save Rick Dalton, and therefore Rick Dalton and co. are able to save Sharon Tate. Because I know for myself, I feel like part of what's happening in that last, that sort of coda moment when Rick Dalton, first of all, he interacts with Jay Sebring, played by Emil Hirsch. Jay knows who he is, and then it turns out Sharon knows who Rick is, and that he's invited up to the house for a drink. That it, To me, it's a reconciliation of the anxiety that Rick had had through the whole movie regarding young people, hippies, the future, in a way. And so I think he's suddenly feeling better about himself, I think, when he has that farewell moment with 
Cliff, where he says, you've been a good friend to me. And Cliff says, I try to be. And there's something just so beautiful in that moment. And then it sort of releases Rick in a way to then go off and sort of like become a part of this next generation by joining Jay and Sharon, maybe be in a movie for Roman. And there is something really beautiful in that. Kenny, did you have any other thoughts on the the ending of the movie? One of the things I thought, you know, I think what's happening with everybody— you know, one of the leitmotifs in the film is that everybody knows who Rick Dalton is. He's anxious. He worries about himself. Almost everyone they run into knows him, and he gets a lot of validation. And I think one of the things that's happening is that, again, this is a very personal film for Tarantino. And he's saying, basically, this stuff I liked as a kid that no one liked, this is the important stuff. Everyone knows and loves this stuff. You know, this these schlocky TV westerns that everyone dumped on. This was the great stuff. This is the stuff that saved the world. Okay, this is a movie that he's sort of talked about in terms of this was my version of, like, this is his memory piece, right? If this is his Roma, it's like he's bringing to life the Hollywood that he saw when he was six years old or something like that. But my question, and this is like really, truly, honestly, an open question that I would like more people to talk about is why is his view, even backwards looking, of 1969 Hollywood in Los Angeles so white. Yeah, and I mean, you see that even in that final scene, which I loved. I mean, and you get the full Tarantino violence. We haven't really described it. You get these, like, honestly, they made me laugh, and I can't really defend that, but just, like, knocking women's heads into stiff mantles and, like, hilarious dogs, like, shaking limp bodies. Like, the violence is funny. And you also get the hysterical Italian wife who's like, she's not a white man and she's sort of coded as foreign and she's like essentially giving you the Italian version of like, ay, ay, ay. you know, she's like hysterical, <laughs> ridiculous. Although she does do her part she, in the fight. They do give so her a, a she gets like a punch or two before she reverts to panic and sort of ridiculosity. And it's I had the same response, despite like floating along on a cloud of like, I basically love this movie. I was like, God. Which brings me back to Bruce Lee. (laughs) Bruce Lee is, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, he's maybe the most prominent character of color in this movie, and he's done so dirty just in service of playing out this scene for Brad Pitt's character, Cliff, which I think, Mark, you pointed out earlier when we first brought it up, that scene is presented, unlike most of the flashbacks in the movie, it's presented as Cliff's memory. So I think any depiction... The way that Bruce Lee is depicted in it, the way he comes off is kind of douchey and in- inflated ego-wise, arguably it could be seen as Cliff's version of that memory, how Cliff would like to remember it. That's why he like would like to remember like barely being knocked down by Bruce Lee, but then denting a car with Bruce Lee. So I think arguably that point could be made, but then... Tarantino, if that is the case, that kind of absolves Tarantino of portraying Bruce Lee in this regretful way. But also he would still be using Bruce Lee in service of these white male characters. I've only seen it once. I'm going to see it again. I'd like to get to a point where I better understand the intention of choices like that. I mean, to me, one possible interpretation is setting up this theme of Cliff as the ultimate movie magic. He's so movie magic that he can beat up Bruce Lee without thinking about it. And in his mind, Bruce Lee is, you know, uh, reduced to kind of a guy who's all swagger and doesn't have the goods, which is just like not what Bruce Lee was by all accounts ever in the history of knowing anything about cinema, right? I mean, that brings me back to my fundamental question of like, how should we feel morally about the idea of Quentin Tarantino reducing Sharon Tate to a princess who can be saved by 
the, you know, daring do of his cinephilia and cinematic expertise. Like, is that is that an okay thing to do with the Sharon Tate story? Well, to me, one thing that as I've been grappling with the ending, I'm not so much troubled by the idea of saving Sharon as much as the idea of defeating the Manson family for the fact that, you know, in all of our sort of like cultural depictions, I mean, obviously Joan Didion's White Album is the like number one example of this, that the Manson family is seen as this sort of inevitable end to the 1960s and this cloud that was just a comet. And so I feel like in a way, and again, with you know, Rick and Cliff being these guys who are feeling like their time is done, it's as if they're fighting back the future when they defeat the Manson family. And as if somehow Rick and being accepted by Jay and Sharon, you know, he's trying to find this generational reconciliation. But I can't help but keep wondering if for Tarantino, in some ways, and I know how this is going to sound, that like Netflix is the Manson family. Everything that Tarantino doesn't like about the modern age and the future and sort of where this industry is now. And so he's going to like go ahead and just set it on fire with a flamethrower. Whoa. (laughs) Although technically they don't defeat Manson himself. Well, and part of what the Mansons represent, I don't know if I can buy the theory that the Mansons represent Netflix. I'm gonna have to, ma- I'm gonna have to marinate on that and see if I can find the, the textual support. But they, to me, they, they, they represent in this film the unruliness of of narrative, right? Like they are not good versus evil and evil gets vanquished. They're not even evil wins and evil makes sense. Like the thing that's so destabilizing is that they're an evil that, although they've been narrativized and we like reading about the story because it is fascinating, like it's like, what? They lived on a where? And then these people did what? Just because he said so? Like it's, it's unruly. It feels un- destabilizing, like... It is outside the constraints of, you know, white hat and black hat on the open plain. And and to me, that uncertainty, unruliness of the future, I mean, maybe I'm talking myself into agreeing with you. It still feels like a leap to Netflix, but... <laughs> well, it's, it doesn't have to be Netflix specifically, but just the idea of modernity and sort of like the industry of today and everything that the Hollywood of 1969 might represent. And in some ways, Jen, this may even answer the question of why his version of Hollywood is so white is just because that was sort of like the quote mainstream, like conventional presentation of it. So that's how it exists in his mind, whether that exists in reality or not. And so I think I'm just grappling with the idea of what it means to have made this kind of nostalgia piece that, you know, is and what its relationship to the future that we know is coming is. It may have no relation at all. I think it's fascinating to spin these theories, but I'm not, well, it doesn't maybe even matter what's on Tarantino's mind because theories exist in and of themselves and they're fun to spin. But I think he, he's not, you know, he's not thinking these deep thoughts about the state of you the don't industry. You think so? Not in this, you know, he likes these kind of stories and he wanted to, you know, he's feeling warm towards these characters and he kind of wants everything to work out okay in this film, you know, and he made it work out okay. I think this happens a lot with filmmakers like Tarantino whenever a movie comes out where people want to find these deeper textural intentions. and They may be there, but that doesn't mean he put them there or that he consciously right, right, put right, them there. Right. But this is why, and I know we've batted around you know, the fact that he's identified this as his Roma or his most personal movie in quite some time. It is interesting that he is choosing to maintain a distance from the press and and not really unpacking it in the way that you know someone as 
characteristically effusive and voluble as Tarantino is, you know, he's not Terrence Malick, just like figure it out yourself. You know, you would welcome his input there. But it's interesting when this movie was first announced and when they first announced Margot Robbie would be playing Sharon Tate, the outrage machine just kicked in immediately from there. And this was pre-Weinstein. This was just people are sort of extrapolating based on, of course, Tarantino's dubious record with depictions of violence, violence against women. So the great delight and surprise of this movie is that the thing about it, the treatment of Sharon Tate's character that I was dreading the most and expecting to cringe at was actually, to me, the most kind of exquisitely moving gesture about. And it's not to say that it's beyond criticism. I think you can absolutely criticize the way the violence is handled. You can absolutely criticize whether it's right to sort of exalt Sharon Tate in this way and exalt her, I mean, not exalt her memory, to save her even in a fictional context. But I was really heartened by that, that that to me seemed almost like what Tarantino wanted to do when he was first conceiving this project was he wanted to actually have good win even in his the crude sort of standards of justice that he applies to his movies and it's it's not nuanced it is good versus evil but that was his impulse I think so Julia have we answered your essential questions do you have any clarity on what this movie means uh, I don't know if clarity will ever be divine. I think Kenny's uh, notions on that point are are wise, and we would be wise to heed him. But I had a lot of fun thinking through what it might mean with you all. And so with that, I think this is a perfect place for us to wrap up this conversation on Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Jen, where can people find you online? You can find me once upon a time dot 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 <laughs> on Twitter at Jen Yamato. You can find me at Justin C. Chang. And I'm at Kenneth Turan. Julia? I'm at Julia Turner. And of course, I am at Indie Focus. And so for LA Times Studios and The Real, I'm Mark Olson. Thanks for listening. Thanks to our producer, Katie Cooper, and our engineer, Mike Heflin. Listen to The Real on Apple, Spotify, at latimes.com slash podcasts, or wherever you get your audio. And if you like what you hear, please give us a five-star review. We get into a fight, I accidentally kill you. 